on the podcast, we have my new friend, Dr. Kelly. Now, Kelly, is it Capic or Capic? Capic, you Kapik. got it. You're Kelly Capic. And um, Dr. Capic is a professor at Covenant College. And just reading from the, the notes here in the book, he got his PhD at King's College and um, the University of London. And he teaches theological studies at, at uh, Covenant College. And where where is Covenant College? It's in Michigan, right? Yeah, Covenant is um, it's right between Georgia and Tennessee, uh, right above. It's on Lookout Mountain, Georgia, but it is right above Chattanooga, Tennessee. So okay, I was thinking Covenant in Michigan. There's a Covenant. Yeah, in no, there's a Covenant. You might be thinking of our sister institution, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. Well, that's where I went. I went to I went to St. Louis first, my seminary. But oh, I know okay. there's a Covenant yeah, yeah. something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Oh, there's another co- I'm sure there's, there's lots, probably right. a lot of them. Yeah. But I've been here 20 years, so this is the one I now think of. Yeah. So tell us, um, just to get to know you a little bit, Kelly, like um, your family, um, what uh, what you've been up to in your adult life, maybe things that you're interested in. Well, that's a big question. Given I turned 50 this year, I don't think you want to hear it all. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I was born and raised. Uh, some of your older listeners will probably know this. I was born and raised in Lodi. Creedence Clearwater Revival had a song called Stuck in Lodi. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's in Northern California near Sacramento. It's the Zinfandel capital of the world. Interestingly so, enough, there is a Lodi, Wisconsin. Is there really? It's only 30 minutes from here. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, CCR was talking about our Lodi, okay, okay, just for the okay. record. Okay. <laughs> if we get in a fight about this, you know, <laughs> I'm going to let your listeners uh, take it up with you. All but, right. All right. No, but uh, anyways, uh, yeah, born in, in Lodi. My wife was born in Anaheim, Southern California, and moved um, to Northern California probably when she was in middle school. And uh, anyways, we I became a Christian my freshman year in high school. Uh, my Middle school years were like people's college years. I know it sounds ridiculous, but in terms of partying and stuff, it just was the case. Um, this was back when uh, 16 Candles and all those movies were the yep. rage. Yep. Uh, and that was just kind of my world and life. Um, anyways, became a Christian in a great uh, Baptist church. It was heavily you know, evangelistic. And I was in trouble and their Wednesday youth group was huge. And so I thought, under advice of others, I thought if I go to that, I'll get people off my back. Uh, I party with some of the kids that go to that. That's fine, you know, as a freshman in high school. And, um, but God used that to uh, slowly over about six months, you know, just work. And um, so, anyways, uh, eventually went off to college. My wife and I got married fairly young. Um, we lived in Chicago and Wheaton. And mm-hmm. then I went, did a seminary degree in Orlando at a reform seminary in the nineties overseas to King's college, London, and then have been at covenant since 2001. Okay. We have two kids. We were married nine years before we had kids, uh, Margo and Jonathan and uh, Mar- uh, Jonathan is now freshman college and uh, we're quickly approaching our 30th anniversary. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. I really want to get into your new book. Um, but before that, I would like to reference an area of your study um, that I'd like to advocate for our people. As I mm. look over your right shoulder on your bookshelf, I see the works of John Owen. <laughs> and um, I, I would be—I would venture to guess that not very many people at our church have read Owen. Mm. Um, I've read a little bit of Owen. I'm not an academic. I found mm-hmm. it 
it's very challenging. It's not easy reading. I don't yeah. know if your people. <laughs> I don't blame your people for not even knowing who he is. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> but but I do know that there are some like Piper says. You know, raking is easy, and all you get is leaves. Digging is mm. hard, and you might get diamonds. Mm. Um, just because I know you've done a lot of work, mm. and in John Owen and co-written a book with my friend Justin. Um, not. You could describe what that book is if you want, mm-hmm. um, and why that book is so important. But maybe, maybe even at a higher level, like why should Christian Christians still be interested in a guy who's been dead for so long, and yeah. what does he have to offer us for today? Yeah. So John Owen was a 17th century Puritan. Um, he was a vice chancellor at Oxford, uh, born in 1616, the year Shakespeare died. Just to kind of give people a sense of how long ago it was, and. The thing that I find helpful about Owen is in many ways, he was actually, he was a, an amazing theologian soaked in scripture, soaked in the early church and medieval church um, and in the reformation. But he also, and I think this is what makes him distinct and particularly helpful. He was what you might call a, um, he was kind of doing early modern psychology, which I know Mm. could scare some of your people, but um, what that means is Owen was a student of scripture and theology, but also a student of the human person. Yeah. And that's what I love is he's, he's not afraid to go deep in theology, but he's always got a pastoral inclination. Um, and so there are a lot of diamonds in there, but I will say it is not easy going. And, and so, um, yeah, he's just he's just not he wrote English kind of like Latin and so the verbs might be dangling at the end of a sentence or something. Sure. So, so how do you recommend for someone who's never picked up Owen and mm. they really like how do you get going and persevere amidst the how do you recommend people persevere amidst the struggle? Yeah, so I mean honestly um so I I co-edited a couple books of Owen's with um with Justin Taylor your friend. Mm-hmm. And either of those would be great. There is a, one of those volumes is called overcoming sin and temptation. Mm -hmm. And even though it is Owen's, it it contains three short works by Owen. And even though it's his wording, we've, we've given some outlines, we've, we've given footnotes, translated, you know, Latin stuff like that, just to make it easier for people. But if they buy that book, even if they just read what's called on mortification, which is the first like 80 pages, Mm -hmm. Well, it's 80 pages. It takes a while to get to it in the book. Um, We find a lot of people will read it in devotions, just a few pages a day or small groups. They'll read a little bit and then occasionally talk about it because it's not about speed reading. You're going to find this person is going to examine your soul. Yeah. And uh, so you just have to go into it slowly and thinking this is about chewing on something little by little rather than pounding through a book. So, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, even just reading that one first work, I think is great. My personal favorite of Owen's, the one that when people ask, you know, what are the most important theological books in your life? For me, Owen's book called Communion with God or our edited version is called Communion with the Trying God is it. And it is stunningly good, but it is still difficult at times. But if you wonder why the Trinity matters for the Christian life, uh, I strongly recommend, even if you only read the first 30 pages sure. <laughs> of that book, which is about the father, it's stunning. 
Amazing. Well, I will put those links in the show notes so people can um, check that out and read reviews and read descriptions and such. In fact, I I think I did. I, well, I know I did. I wrote something that recently went up um, for Desiring God Ministry, and it's probably like a two-page engagement, two or three-page engagement with mortification of sin. Okay. And so you could link, and so people could read. Yeah, they could just read that for free and get a sense of what's going on there. Cool. Well, let's turn to your new book. Um, kudos to the artist whoever made that cover. That's a beautiful, that beautiful, beautiful cover. One of yeah. the best, one of the best book covers I've seen in a long time. Um, so you know what's fun about that is, you may or may not know this. Uh, I didn't know this until I started writing books. There's two things that an author does not have control over, and that is the title of the book and the cover. I and did not know that. Isn't that amazing? You're like, you're like, wait, I don't get to pick the top. You can have an opinion. Yeah. And normally you have a strong voice, but you definitely, you know, JK Rowling, the first volume of her Harry Potter is not what she wanted it called until the American version, I think is, but because they didn't know it'd sell, but once she sold as much, now she gets to say whatever. Exactly. Exactly. You know? But anyways, um, I did pick this title, but the cover, you, you kind of give them a brief description. I said, listen, when we, People don't know what finitude is, which is what we're going to talk about. But if they do, they think it's just death. Right. And I said, I want a beautiful cover. Yeah. I want it to be life giving. So I gave some of those, and that's what they came up with. It's so I love it. Yeah. So anyway, we'll have to. That's the story um, behind it. You can click on the link in the show notes, and you'll be able to see the cover. It's a beautiful cover. But the title of of your book is "You're Only Human." Subtitle: How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. But I just really wanted to simply start with "You're Only Human." And it seems like that's a very self-evident statement. Even <laughs> even like um, we say it all the time, well, I'm only human, like it kind of a right. cliche. Right. So uh, help us understand why a book on you're only human is necessary in today's world. <laughs> Let me count the ways. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's a great question. And we do use it. I'm, some of your listeners will know there's there's a Billy Joel song with that title. Yep. Sometimes it depends on, you'll show your age by which song you think of with that right. title. Um, and it plays, the title actually plays at several levels. Um, I, I Let me first approach it this way. I think as Christians, we often struggle with the idea that we're human. And I think we have misunderstood spirituality in ways that are dehumanizing. And so when you have dehumanizing forces outside of the church, whether they're in technology, the workplace, etc., and then you have some dehumanizing forces within the church that treat spirituality in a way that undermine our physicality and other kinds of aspects of being human, it's just a rough place to live. And so you're only human could sound like a negative, like, Hey, you're, you're just a human. Who do you think you are? Or it can be positive. Like you're only human. Mm-hmm. Now, culturally, we often use that as an excuse for sin, right. which is not what I mean. Right. Um, so anyways, that maybe that's enough to get you to the next place, but that that's a little reflection. Does that help? It does. It does. Yeah. I feel like there's a thousand different directions we can go. Mm-hmm. Um, I know one of the directions that you go in the book is in reference to the physical body and the goodness of our bodies. Mm. And that seems like a very contemporary discussion. Mm. 
Um, and I know it has deep historical roots when it comes to yeah. Gnosticism and things like that. Um, this might be too broad of a question, so we'll, we'll edit if we need to on the fly. But like historically, yeah. uh, there's lots of very popular people and famous people like a few millennia ago that believed that the body was bad. Right. right. And um, I'm not an expert in this. You would know a lot more than me, but I know a stream of that is called Gnosticism. Right. And there may be a modern form of that in our world mm-hmm. today. Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, and just remind me at the end of our discussion, let's get it, bring it back to the title. You're only human yep. and that'll, that'll be good. But yeah, so Gnostics, they, they were a serious challenge in the early church uh, because they did think the material world is bad. And since God is a spirit, he must be, he, the spirit is good. Material is bad. Um, and what you find is that the ancient church leaders like Irenaeus and others uh, said, no, no, no. God created the world and he called it good. And the God who created the good world is good. Mm-hmm. So we need to embrace our materiality. Now, in our contemporary world, um, it's funny. There are both secular and Christian versions of deep discomfort with our bodies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, we are tempted to romanticize the body and think it is anything and it is everything and invest everything you have in it. Mm-hmm. And we make the body an idol and, and yeah. you know, um, one of the things I talk about in the book is we're pretty familiar nowadays with thinking about women and this being a struggle for women. Right. But what part of my research took me to, uh, what people may not know is this is a body image issues are massive and growing rapidly among men. Yep. Um, and it is not, it is not, it's still stronger among women, but not just men. Um, so on one hand, there is this romanticizing, idealizing the body that can be a problem, but then in, in more Christian circles, taking misunderstanding some statements by the apostle Paul and and others talking about the flesh in negative ways. Mm -hmm. We think he's talking about the body. Right. And so thinking that our physical bodies are bad, our souls are all, all that matter and that are all, all that are good. So you kind of get this pressure where either you idealize the body or you think that the body is the prison house of the soul. Right. And the Bible and Christian orthodoxy, doesn't do either of those. Right. It actually says that the good God made the world, including our bodies. Our bodies are good. Sin has affected us, including our bodies. Um, but but the Christian hope is not ultimately the immortality of the soul. It's the resurrection of the body. So all that to say, our bodies really matter. And worship is an embodied act. It's right. meant to be done um, in and through our bodies. So, um, yeah, I... I I find there's a chapter on touch, for example. Yeah. Uh, kind of exploring that. And I think Christians are really struggling with touch among others, right? So you have, on the one hand, there's pretty strong evidence, uh, as much as we'd love to deny it or ignore it, but that a physical, sexual, various forms of abuse have happened in the church, and we have too often turned a blind eye to that. Amen. And we we should not do that. We need strong child protection policies and that kind of thing. The challenge is some people want to ignore that, which is a problem. The challenge is others because of that problem, then want to say like, we should never touch. Right. And let's, let's, let's pretend like people don't have bodies and don't look at people and, and some of that. 
But it's kind of like when you have verbal abuse, the answer to that is not the absence of words. Amen. The answer to that is good, healthy, life-giving words. Well said. And so as a professor, I you know, have college students, and then I talk to them after they graduate. And one of the things I've commonly found is that the year after they graduate is often some of the most difficult spiritual times and, and personal times in their lives. And as we talk about that, one of the things that becomes clear is when they were in college, you know, when I walk across campus, like earlier today, you'll see students rolling around on the grass together, you know, or high hug. They see each other. They hug each other. It's great. You know, all this kind of stuff. They don't think twice about it. They live in these dormitories together. And then all of a sudden they graduate and they're told, be an adult. Mm-hmm. And to be an adult, you should live on your own and you should be on your, and all of a sudden, many of them find they, they move somewhere and they can go days, sometimes weeks, even months without any healthy touch. Yeah. They'll go to church in and out, not feeling. And it's amazing because they will, and I've had multiple students say this, they never knew they needed touch. Mm. It wasn't like they were like, you know, it's not like. I'm not just talking about like, quote unquote, touchy people. I'm just talking about being human, right? This is how God made us. And so those are exp- those, those kind of things highlight for me. We and, and think how often in the New Testament, there's a surprising emphasis on the holy kiss. And we yeah. all joke about that these days, but there's something very powerful and important to that. Or Jesus, so what is tu- a, Jesus touching people in the gospel. Yeah, and Jesus, yeah. which is a big part of that, like, Jesus is touched. Like, don't miss how significant that is. Yeah. Yeah. That's so help connect the dots for me and for our listeners. How does that chapter on the importance of physical touch? Um, and I'd love to do a, a sub question on the pandemic and the mm, loss of physical touch. Absolutely. And yeah. I'm, Cause I'm sure you thought a lot about that, but the question is how does that connect to your overall thesis of how your limits reflect God's design and why that's good news? Yeah. So culturally, what we're told is if you want to be, you know, the oxygen we breathe is really, you should be an autonomous uh, individual. We live American individualism. Yeah. Radical individualism. And so, um, and a lot, uh, one of the main theses in the book, is the idea of dependence. Mm-hmm. And when I say dependence in America, if you're like me and I, I'm, I'll admit it too, that is not a happy word. It was like, if someone calls you dependent, right. does, does that sound like a positive? It's definitely no. a negative. Right. It's not a positive. Well, the fact is God actually made us to be dependent. That's not a result of the fall. That's a result of how he made us. Amen. Um, and so our bodies are some of the testament to our dependence. We need, we are dependent on the earth for food. We get deceived because we walk into a grocery store. We don't even have to talk to anyone. We grab shit eggs. You can now scan out without talking to anyone. And we think, I did that. Right. I made the money. I did. No, no, no. There are so many people involved in that, right? <laughs> right. Um, you don't have, there's a section in the book on, on the theological importance of the belly button. Yeah. None of us exist Amen. except for physical touch happening, Amen. right? So, um, and being dependent, (laughs) dependent through the umbilical cord. Yes, absolutely. So, one of the big things is to be human is to be dependent. Now, I understand, um, 
there are problems of codependence. I totally get that. I understand that. But dependence is not sinful. Sin is what distorts good and healthy and right dependence. Yes, man. I've got a list of questions, um, but my mind is just firing to other things I want to ask. I'm I'm an improviser musically uh, in Mm. my, in my hobbies. So like improvisation feels good in a conversation too. So here's the question. When you talk about rugged individualism and as I've traveled throughout the world in the last decade, I've seen the contrast to that very American mindset. Right. Would you say that your book is a uniquely American book? Um, or is it like, or have you discovered other cultures that just, they don't need to read this book as much because yes, they, yes, they're, yes, di- yes, they're yes. dialed into some of these things a lot more than we are as Americans. Yes. Um, much more the latter. So, I, I mean, there are themes in there that I would hope anyone in any culture would find beneficial. You know, I really do hope it's, it's biblically and theologically helpful and sound. But it is me applying biblical and theological truths to Western culture by and large. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do talk at different times about differences. For example, uh, difference. There's a chapter on, you know, do I have enough time? Mm-hmm. And one of the things you find is there are different conceptions of time itself culturally. Right. right. And so, uh, th- and we can talk about that later if you want. So it is. Um, I'm hoping it's not an American book in that I'm smuggling in American answers. It's actually my hope is that it's a prophetic word of grace to people in America and other Western countries who don't even know the oxygen were the, yes. the poisons that have come into the oxygen. Let's, let's notice this, the, the, yes. the water we're swimming in. Yes. So that we, we feel guilty for not doing enough because we think in purely individual terms Yep. And that's part of what I'm trying to address. Whereas someone in a different culture that's more collectivist or communal, that's not their issue. They have right. other issues For sure. and there are other things that they need to hear. They might need to hear something about personal responsibility and God loves you and not just the group, etc. Whereas we need to hear God doesn't just love you. He loves the group, but yep. he does love you too. Right. 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 So it's just, it, the Bible is amazing, right? It, it can apply right. to the whole world. It's just, who, as individuals and communities, which word do we need to hear? Yep. I feel like one of the things that, you know, where my individual life and experience intersects with this book is all the conversations I have with people. And there is always this undercurrent, and I do it, I do it all the time. And I hear it from others too. But it's just like, so what have you been up to lately? Mm. Oh, man, just so busy. Right, right, right. So busy. And, right. um, and I'm like, there's this, a shame in saying, like, imagine this conversation, Kelly, how you, how you been doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How have you been doing Zach? Oh, I've been doing good, man. I've just had a ton of free time Yeah. and I've, uh, <laughs> taken some long walks with the dog yeah. and, yeah. uh, I wrestled getting good sleep, getting great sleep, great sleep, <laughs> sleeping in, Yeah. you know, and, uh, I watched a show the other night that was really interesting on Netflix and, uh, yeah. Wrestled with the kids a little bit, ate some great food. Yeah. Um, you know, like th- I, that never comes out of my mouth. And now, now mm-hmm. I, I experience days like that sometimes, you know. Right. And that's not to say that, you know, work is bad. And I, I love my work and da da da. But 
I'm just noticing how that kind of conversation never comes out of my mouth. Yeah. It's like, man, man, life is busy. Oh yeah. We've yeah. got a lot going on, a lot going yep. on. And do you observe that as well? And, and, oh, yeah. and <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and let me, let me get right to the heart of it for us and for, for your church listeners. Um, I definitely see that I struggle with it myself. And what I'm interested in is what is the root of that? Right. And there are, there are all kinds of forces. There are cultural forces, there are ecclesial, you know, churchly forces, there are personal forces. But for me, here's what I would say. I think as Christians, we have so often confused finitude and sin. Yeah. And let me, just to tell your listeners what finitude mean, means, it's a fancy word, but it just means limits, uh, limited in space, time, power, energy, or even a, just a different way of saying finitude or limits is creature, right? I'm not, I'm not God. Yeah, you're you're a creature. And I think we constantly, especially in some of us in the Reformed tradition, we constantly confuse finitude and sin. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a personal example. Yes. So when I put my head on the pillow, I, you know, I'm a pretty driven person, etc. I put my head on the pillow at night. And it's not uncommon for me to feel a wave of guilt. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is if I actually take the time to explore what that is and, you know, ask for God's forgiveness as I, as I feel it, kind of doing an examine of my day. What occurred to me, though, is how often that wave of guilt was not because I spoke harshly to someone or, you know, I was greedy in my heart. I'm not saying I never struggled with those kind of things, but that wave of guilt almost always was, why didn't you get more done? Mm-hmm. And I realized, is that actually sin? Mm-hmm. And the answer a lot of the times is no. And so I'm really worried that we, even though we often don't ask for forgiveness for that, we feel like we should. And I th- I'm trying to say, actually, we need to ask forgiveness that we ever thought we could do everything. Amen. And what is going on in us that this this distortion has taken place? So pastor us, Kelly. Yeah. Pastor us. Like, wh- well, why is that there? Why? Because I I do the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. So it and so here's here's the thing. Even it's not just outside in the church. The answer we give to people who are feeling this is time management techniques. Yeah. That's what we do. Oh, I'm sorry you feel that. Here's you, you need to use your time better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is why the, let me help and hurt at the same time or hurt and then hopefully help. Here's why this matters so much. This is not abstract. This is not philosophical. What we're talking about ultimately is love. Mm-hmm. And we confuse. We, we are in trouble because we have made efficiency and productivity the highest values. And as Christians, we've baptized that. And here's the problem. Love is often the most inefficient thing you can ever do. <laughs> and, and so, you know, asking, uh, uh, you know, parents, as you know, before you have kids, you know, you get, you're humming along. You, you don't know how you're getting by anyways, but you're like, oh, we're going to have a kid. We'll just add the kid and we'll do a little bit different. You know, we know there's going to be kids. And then new parents have the shock in their eyes because they're not sleeping. And, the, you know, and my wife and I would always joke around people say, how's how is it with Jonathan or, you know, when our firstborn, was, you know, and, and my wife would sometimes say, she's funny. She'd say, you know what? He's good, but he's just so needy. 
And people have this panic in their eyes, like, no, he's a baby. He's needy. And obviously needy, which means you can't have a schedule. Your life gets all messed up. Right. Right. Or just get a puppy. Love a puppy. It's inefficient. Right. Right. And, And this is what. I'll pastor you for a second as pastors and your congregation should hear this. This is what's so difficult about one of the things so difficult about being a pastor is business people. Well-meaning say, I want to help the church and they'll come in and they'll understandably, it drives people crazy when you get into the inside workings of a church because it's so inefficient. Right. Right. So they go, no, here are the systems here. Here's how we'll become more efficient and productive, productive. Well, the problem is when you're a pastor, you have all these great plans for your week. And then by Tuesday, Jane dies. Exactly. Yep. And then that's Tuesday morning. And then Tuesday afternoon, uh, James, you find out, is addicted to meth. Right. You know, what? what right. if, your whole week is blown up and you've just started. Yeah. And so you can, and I've known pastors who've done this, you go like, sorry, I just can't, you know. <laughs> and you're just not loving. Now, mm-hmm. part of what we need to help pastors understand is the fact that there's a need doesn't mean you're called to meet all of the needs. Sure. But having said that, um, well, you, love yeah. is inefficient. And I, and I just yeah. think of the Gospels, Kelly, like when you read the Gospels through the lens of efficiency, mm. there's a lot of examples of how Jesus does things that are not very efficient like escaping to a desolate place to be with his father when there's thousands more people that could get healed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just can I, so I, can I go a little further then? Please. So one of the chapters is, is, um, is called all the chapters are arranged around questions. One of the, one of the questions is why doesn't God just instantly change me? Which is a similar kind of, why doesn't he? So, you know, it's fair to ask, God doesn't want us to sin, right? Nope. He doesn't want us to sin. Sin's not good. Sin's hurt. Sin hurts me, hurts the people around me, hurts earth, all, all this kind of stuff. So if God doesn't want me to sin, if it's not good, why do I still struggle with sin? Mm-hmm. And it's a legitimate question. You start to think, wait a minute, is God only good at forgiving us? And then he just basically leaves us on our own. Mm-hmm. Like what's going on? And and if this is the system built up that God doesn't want us to sin and every day we sin, is God just basically disappointed with us every single day? Hmm. Is that God's disposition toward us, right? Where he is just just perpetually frustrated and disappointed in us. Yeah, and gr- I grumpy. think and I think that is super common yeah. uh, for our and then I think, oh, okay, well, when you know, when my you know, I mentioned Jonathan. When Jonathan was learning to walk, I'd, you know, like parents, I'd, send, I'd stand him up with one hand on the couch, about eight feet, you know, and then I'd kind of walk back eight feet. I'd say, come here, Jonathan, come to me. And you know how it is. He's scared. You know, but eventually he kind of has the courage, takes his hand off the couch, makes a step or two, falls on his butt, right? Yep. And then he looks at you to see how you'll respond. And when Jonathan first did that and he fell after two feet and he looked at me with his eyes wide, you know what I did? I said, what are you doing, you idiot? (laughs) (laughs) Now, honestly, I might have just triggered some of your listeners. Yeah, for sure. Because that is what we, of course I didn't do that. 
Right. We know what I, I walked. I said, oh, sweetie, that's all right. You're all right. You know, and to stand him up, say you're okay. And I give him courage. And I, I totally love him. I know Jonathan needs to walk, but I also know the process will take time. Yep. The building of muscle and balance and all of that. Yep. Well, we treat God like God is naive, mm -hmm. right? And so part of the theme of the book is that the God of creation is the same as the God of redemption. Yeah. He's not a different God. So when you look at the creation story, notice God, this gets us back to what we we're talking about a while ago. So God could, how fast could God have created everything? That's my question. Yeah. Yes. Don't you think, I mean, he could faster yep. than a millisecond, yep. faster than, you know, anything he could create it that fast and he doesn't. Mm -hmm. Whether you think the earth was created six 24 hour days, 10,000 years ago or 10 billion years ago, it actually on this question doesn't matter. Either way, what is clear in the Genesis narrative is God takes his time. Mm -hmm. He likes process. Day one, I do this and I call it good. Day two, I do this guy. Well, God has always been comfortable with process and he thinks it's good. Yeah, I hate process, Kelly. I hate yeah. it. It's too, <laughs> sl it's too so slow. It's way too slow. He's comfortable, right? <laughs> He's comfortable saying, yeah, here's where you're at, Zach. Here's where I'm going to get you. Yep. You're a saint. Yep. And I'm committed to making you live like a saint. Yes, sir. But God doesn't panic every day. Mm -hmm. He's not frustrated and disappointed with us every day. Yep. He is a loving father who picks us up, says, I love you. Yep. Let's do this again. Yep. Does that so make sense? That was me does. talking for a long no, time. No, no, no. That was really good. It's so good. There's, man, there's so much here that will be helpful for our people. But I'd love to keep digging into, like, I think you said a little bit ago, the idolatry of efficiency or something like mm. that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the church has baptized it. Yeah. Can you give us examples of that to further relate to that and maybe see that in our own cultures, church cultures, or, you know, in our heart? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it can be baptized in terms of programs. I think it just, well, I'll give you an example of how it gets baptized. Think about how we understand the text redeeming the time. Mm -hmm. So, and this gets back to kind of your opening discussion. Like I never say, Hey, I had a nice leisurely walk. I slept. I, you know, when we say redeem the time, we understand it. We interpret that in almost purely and almost entirely productivity models. Yeah. So we think that must mean you need to suck the life out of every second of your day to use it the best way you possibly can. Otherwise you're not quote unquote redeeming it. Right. Um, and I don't think we have any idea how completely modern that view is. Hmm. Um, rather than redeeming the time, understanding in terms of what God is doing in Christ by his spirit and us learning to live in the fear of the Lord, in the various rhythms of life, um, just the way we view time in terms of measurement, we don't even know how modern that is, right? Sure. So, and maybe, maybe I should talk about that. But so I just think that affects us constantly, whether it's us trying to bring an application to people's lives. And it's like, well, how much TV did you watch? How much internet did you watch? One of my concerns in the book is we constantly blame Netflix or the internet for these problems. And I think, I think one of the things we should be asking is when people go on Netflix binges or when you, you know, you have people just constantly scrolling through the Facebook feeds, right? 
rather than blaming those things, I think pastorally we want to ask, why are they doing that? Right. And I think it's part of this unbelievable pressure people have. And so these are forms of escape, even though they don't tend to think they're great and we don't tend to feel rested after them, we're doing them because of this deeper malady. Yeah. And so I'm worried that pastorally we blame those things rather than seeing them as a sign of a deeper, a deeper problem, right? which is um, kind of inhumane structures in our life, inhumane expectations. Um, one of the ways it shows up in the church is how we've baptized education. And we think, you know, if you're a good Christian, you've got to be constantly growing educationally, get great grades, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That, you know, I'm an educator. I love education, but you can make it an idol in all kinds of problems. Yeah. You can, you can glorify God with your life with a high school degree period. Like it seems, it seems silly that I would even have to say that out loud. Yeah. But just saying it out loud makes me realize maybe I don't believe that because yeah. I, I don't think about that very often. Yeah. Like, you know, my kids are going, my kids are going to, you know, you know, and I don't really believe that if they don't want to go to college, that's fine. But it does expose something that I think is in there. Um, let, let's well, talk and about, so, go ahead. So, so here's, here's the massive way I think we baptize it. And this isn't just Christians, but Christians were heavily into this is in the first chapter, I talk about the average day of a high school kid. So when you have it, and this is by and large true of kids growing up in public or private high schools in middle-class or affluent neighborhoods. So there are some differences, but here's an average day for a high school kid. You get up, you head to school by 7.30 in the morning. Yep. You're there till 3.30. After that, you head off to an extracurricular, whether it's a sport, or theater, or robotics, whatever it is. Or a job, maybe. Yeah. Well, and often it's not, a job is an even other thing, but you do this thing until, say, six. Yep. You rush home, you shove some food in, and then you often do forms of homework Mm -hmm. uh, or other activities until about 11, sometimes later, and then you start the whole thing over. That was me. And Exactly. And now think about what's happened. We've been catechized in that. Yeah. So you start at 7.30, you go until you can't go anymore at 11, you're con- and then you start again, and often, is you know, well, then what happened? And then in college, I'm a college professor. I had a student come to me. She mapped out her week, because yep. I've been talking about this for years, and she color-coded it. Yep. And it was so, st- and she said, here are the things that people I respect tell me I should do. As professors, parents, and you should get eight hours of sleep. So she blocks that up. You should eat three meals a day and not just shove food in your mouth, but actually sit down, have a, you know, you should study a certain amount for each class. It's literally impossible. So we set people. So anyways, <laughs> uh, let me cut to the chase. If you do that through high school and then you do that to college and then you graduate, if you get off of your job at five and you're quote unquote done for the day and you don't do a bunch more activities you feel like you're slothful. Bro, you are, I just called you bro. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly, you are diagnosing my life right now. And I know I'm not the only one. Because that was me in college. And I told my kids, I got one kid in college right now. And when I was in college, it was literally study, friends, work, and that's about it. Nonstop, nonstop. Two jobs, trying to get decent grades, 
prioritizing relationships with my friends that were always yep. doing something. And yep. I would get up at seven and I wouldn't go to bed until 11 midnight and then do it all over again. I never stopped. And, and I got to about 35 years old and I'm like, Oh geez. Like if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Yeah. And my, my, literally my brain is starting to unravel. Yeah. <laughs> and no, and, and it is how, I mean, uh, some of these podcasts, there was, there was a, a woman who got interviewed before me on one I did and she you know, some of your audience would know her name, but she was a CNN reporter. She was, I think she was 35. That's what made me think of it. Mm -hmm. Very successful, but became a Christian and her, she was super achieving and her whole body was falling apart. Yeah. And it was a crisis. And I guess your audience wouldn't know this, but the reason I can write, I mean, I've literally, it's not an exaggeration. I've been thinking about this topic for 20 years, Yeah, but the reason I finally felt able to write it is so in 2008, my wife got cancer mm -hmm. and we went through that. And after surgeries, et cetera, she eventually was declared cancer free. Praise God. Mm -hmm. We were so thankful Yep. The psychological, physical scars were real, but we thought, God, you sustained us, got us through the real thing. Thank you. That's great. Let's move upwards on. We're, we're both pretty, you know, I don't know, type AP. I don't know what you call it, but, you know, we, we, we love to push. We're vision kind of people or work people. Yep. And then in 2010, she was working for an international relief agency called Medair. And this is during the Haiti earthquake. And, um, she was president of the U.S. office, kind of remote, but here in Chattanooga. And the Haiti earthquake was terrible. She was downtown meeting with some pastors about um, some church. And I'm telling you this to say she's doing God's work, right? Yeah. She's meeting with these pastors about church planning in Haiti in this area after the earthquake. Really important stuff that she happened to know about. And she's driving back from that meeting, calls me from the side of the road. She's driving our little stick shift and says, I don't think I can make it home. My, my leg's not working right. And that was in 2010. And now to skip to make the story really short, since that day to this day, there's never been a day when my wife is not in pain and has serious fatigue. Mm. And it took us six years through Mayo to diagnose what it is. And in the book, Embodied Hope, I talk about this. So I ended up writing a book called Embodied Hope, reflecting on pain and suffering. And it took that for my wife and I, we, I mean, we're just forced to cut all these things out of our lives. Not, and we, th we'd cut and we'd cut. And then we're like, okay, we've done enough. And then we realized, nope, we've got to cut more. Yep. And it was only by being forced to do that, mm -hmm. that in some ways starting to get a sense of what being here. And I still very much struggle with this. I mean, this is, this is just going to be one of my struggles as this misunderstanding of productivity and stuff. But, um, so I, all of it to just tell your listeners, this isn't hypothetical for us. This is something we're really living and wrestling right. with and struggling with. I think part of it, like I have a fairly similar story that I could share, mm. um, where, uh, let's see, I'm 45 now. So about, so about 39 was 39 was the worst year of my life. Mm. Um, where I kind of hit the wall with anxiety and depression to the degree mm. where if I didn't have some help, I would probably need to quit my job as pastor. Mm. Um, I was just imploding and couldn't sure. think correctly and it was it was dark i wasn't hospitalized but it probably could have gotten that way if i hadn't have right. gotten some help um but i think back to the college years and it's like the reason why we can keep that pace when we're 21 is because i think life hasn't happened to us yet 
Mm. Meaning, meaning like for some people it has, but for some people, like for my case, like I just hadn't suffered. Like life yeah. hasn't hit me with all the burdens of what it means to be yeah. a human being in a fallen world. Yeah. And a couple yeah. decades later, it's like, oh, so I, if I don't have margin to yes. handle the suffering that the world is going to throw at me because it's a fallen world, my brain's going to implode. Yeah. Because and your I, heart. Yeah. Because my heart and my brain, because I can't go nonstop all day mm. long and not get provision for the fact that I'm not God and I can't bear the weight of the world. Mm. And that links to a, 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 um, a quote I wanted to read that I think is uh, from your book that really, I think, some summarizes, and I'd love to hear you maybe reflect on it a little more. We don't say the words, this is on page five, actually, uh, but we live as though the weight of the world were on our shoulders and it exhausts us. Behind the patient grin on our faces, we hide a lingering rage. I, I find it interesting you use the word rage. Mm. A lingering rage about the endless demands that must be met unrealized dreams and relational disappointments. Hmm. Oh yeah. I think there's a lot of anger, <laughs> a lot of anger behind very kind looking faces. Yeah. Um, and you see this is, and you as a pastor know this, this is where all of a sudden you're like, I thought that marriage was okay. And now we went from zero to 50 exactly. and it is, it is on the rocks. Exactly. And that is because there was a lingering rage of expectation. And I mean, it can be all kinds of reasons, right. but one of the things that contributes is this expectations. Um, I mean, think about again, like how we baptize, what is a quote unquote Christian mom supposed to do all of these expectations, which are so unrealistic. And now, I mean, I'm thankful that as a conservative church, we've gotten better in terms of some of the stereotypes about men and finally men are doing more of the housework and some of that. I think we right. still have a long way to go. But now all of a sudden you, you realize men are finally rightly starting to bear some of this, but then they're, they have a pent up rage too. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, and I, I think one of the things to get at is to explore the rage. And here's what I would say. When you start to explore, where do these expectations come from? What, what, what should I expect from my day? What should I expect from my kids, etc.? I'm a theologian. And what I've really come to see is behind those expectations is actually, we think it's God who has them for us. Yeah. We don't almost, we almost never articulate it that way. No. But that is what we think, and which is also why we rage because we we know we can't win an argument with God, or we're we're convinced we can't actually bring it up with God, so we just take it out on each other. Yeah. Um, but part of part of what's going on there is this sense of control, and the Psalms are one of the greatest medicine for this because the Psalms are like, "Why God? Where were you, God? I have no strength, God. I'm a, I'm this. I'm, you know, I got nothing yeah, here. Yeah, you know, and I just think our people would find such grace to pray the Psalms because of the honesty. Yeah, um, in it. I feel like another topic that is kind of a subset of this. And I didn't read your whole book, um, Sorry, so I don't know if it's. I in forgive there. you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's in there or not. But I've come to terms with my humanity more through aging. 
Mm. And like thinking theologically about aging is not something that you hear a lot mm. of sermon series yeah. on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But for example, when I was 25, the horizon was huge. Yeah. And, and, and I felt like I had no limits, mm-hmm. endless energy. You know, I'm never going to get cancer. I'm not, I mean, yeah, right. in theory, whatever, but like that's way, way down the road. So I don't even right, worry right, about right. that. And, and then you get to about 40. And it's like, you look back and you're like, I used to think this way as 25 and I was going to accomplish all those things. Mm. And all of a sudden it dawns on me, I, I didn't really accomplish those things. Mm. Like like at 25, I know, I bet if I worked really hard, I could have a ministry like Tim Keller. Right, you right, know? right, right. And I, I was like, now at 45, <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not Tim Keller and I'll never be Tim yeah. Keller. And the, the challenge with that is- And you th- find yourself actually like, praise God, I'm exactly. not Tim Keller. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. a lot of responsibility, but but yeah. but if you haven't thought through limits and creation, mm-hmm. um, that I think a deep sense of maybe it's not rage as much as for me like a disillusionment mm-hmm. with like mm-hmm. this is who I am now. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, I thought I thought it was gonna be more than this. Yeah, no, that's know? good. So there is in the last chapter, which is the longest chapter. There, I mean, there's applications throughout, but it's really focused on some pastoral advice on how to how to cultivate a healthy view of finitude and and one of the sections is about recognizing different seasons and rhythms of life and i agree um we don't tend to understand or honor the different seasons and the reality is um so for me pastorally and theologically because i write on spirituality and stuff in my in my own mind Whenever I want to talk about spirituality, I don't always say this. I almost never say it out loud, but here's what I actually have in mind. Does this work for a mom with a newborn? And does this work for a poor person, materially poor person? So give us some some examples. Well, yeah, because we have all these great ideas of spirituality and, and we romanticize it, but they often tend to involve situations where you can do things that only someone with whether it's take a few days off and go on a retreat or, or you should be able to sit and read your Bible for 45 minutes at a time or, you know, those kind of things. Um, I actually think all of those things can be good, but if you make them essential, that becomes a problem. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so there are different seasons of life that we need to honor and um, different situations. And so what we should expect faith and so i like the word faithfulness mm-hmm. because what faithfulness looks like when you have three children under the age of 6 is different than what lo- faithfulness looks like when you're 55 and an empty nester yep. right what faithfulness looks like when you have an income of $150,000 and what faithfulness looks like when you make $16,000 looks different but God requires faithfulness, right? Yeah. So we need to think a little bit uh, about what that looks like. And, um, but I, something you said, I want to circle back a little bit because I'd, I'd love to talk about humility a little bit, if that's all right. I would love that because there's a chapter on have we misunderstood humility? And I think, you know, I'd love for your, your folks to at least hear this before we end because I think we've misunderstood humility, which is part of what contributes to the rage and some of the discontent. Mm-hmm. So when you ask most Christians, and even in the history of the church, very often, like, why should we be humble? 
The immediate answer is because we're sinners. And I want to, I'm a reformed theologian. I think we really are sinners. I think sin is a really big problem. Yeah. And, and the fact that we are sinners should contribute to the reason why we should be humble. However, what I've come to believe is that when you build the foundation of humility upon sin, it is a foundation that cannot hold it and it distorts humility. Hmm. Um, and this is where you end up with forms of self self-loathing, mm-hmm. um, which I see all the time, deep problems uh, in, our, in a lot of our circles. Um, so here's what I would say. The reason why we're to be humble is because we're creatures. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. And so even here, the, the question is, even if there were no sin and fall, were humans made to be humble? And the answer is yes, because. Or will we be humble in the new heavens and new earth? Yes. And the answer is yes, Mm -hmm. because simply being a creature means that by design, God made us always to be dependent on God, neighbor, and the earth. Dependence is just part of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a great treatment of this. And so sin, as I mentioned earlier, sin is what distorts those dependencies, but doesn't doesn't create them, right? It's not the dependence that's the problem. Well, here's pastorally why this matters. If you think sin is the foundation of humility, then the way you foster humility is you think more, you know, think more about your sin, focus on your sin and realize how bad you are and that will help you be humble. Well that, that is that just leads to all kinds of problems. Yeah. I'm not saying ignore your sin, we need to confess our sin, but what if you also realize, you know how you want to here's pastoral practical advice, you want to be humble? People think I'd like to be humble, but either you are or you aren't. No, 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 I can help you be humble. Here's a practice. Start to celebrate and delight in other people. Mm-hmm. Start to see them not as a threat, but take the time to genu- don't lie. Don't pretend things about them, but actually look for the gifts and strengths God has given them yep. and faithfulness in them and learn to actually celebrate that. See, because what's happened is I have to have all of these things rather than we. Yeah. And it, and what, you know, there's a chapter on the church and my short, say you know save you a long chapter it's basically it takes the entire church to be the one body of christ yeah and so humility helps us not rage because rather than feeling like i need to do all these things i can go wow look at what that person brings it's not a threat to me it's a joy to me Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um and i just think even in christian circles that is not how we're thinking yep that makes sense. It Again, does. Yeah, it really does. Can I ask you two more questions and we can yeah. wrap up? Yep. Um, so let's say the average American Christian is right. It, uh, swinging too far in the direction of like, I'm stressed out. I'm doing too much. I've, I feel guilty all the time for the things yep. I'm not doing. Yep. Is it possible and maybe this is just a different book that has to be written, mm. but like that we swing to the other side and it's like, dude, you're just lazy, mm-hmm. you know? Cause a lot of people will, will hear this and myself included and just go, yeah. well, we got to We got to make sure we're not being too lazy. Yeah. 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 You know? Cause I yeah. honestly, like I could, I could be lazy. I, I have that potential. Yeah. If I, yeah. if I let myself, um, how does that factor in? Or how do you think about that? It's, it's a great question. It's one that comes up a fair amount where people, you know, and I, you worry, you're like, wait a minute, given what Capic's saying, 
everyone's just going to ch- I mean, it's funny. I get invitations and I go to churches and stuff, yeah. but I, I got one recently. A, a pastor wrote me and he said, um, you know, here's some things going on in our church. We're struggling. We'd really like you to come talk to our leadership and some of this. Uh, and my wife suggested that you come, but I told her, um, if I bring, if I bring Capic, all my elders are not going to do, they're all, they're all going to want to do less work. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, to his credit, he, he laughed about it and said that, but he's right. Right. So that's our fear. Like, and so, especially like, we don't like, wait, if no one's going to do this, we're going to, this ship is going to sink. Right. right. So I get that. I think agency really matters. But rather than um, try and immediately answer that, the question I, because it's interesting, it's a bunch of us who who actually are doing too much who are so worried about it. Yeah. So my pastoral question for us is, what do you think sloth looks like? Mm-hmm. What do you think is lazy? And to be honest, normally what we mean by sloth or lazy is what in many other cultures in the Bible would be called rest. <laughs> Or, or community. <laughs> or leisure. Yeah. Yes. Or like, it's just, I have time to stop and talk to somebody and not yeah, be annoyed. I mean, it's just, it's just the, it, it's part of, again, you know, we've forever tried to make machines into humans and now we've actually made humans into machines. Right. And so we actually think we should just need to be able to plug in and get. So part of the exploration is in order to answer, are we going to become slothful or lazy? I actually think we need to explore, well, what is sloth? What is yep. laziness? And what is rest? Right. Um, how, do we, there's a section in the book on, it won't surprise you, on on the Lord's day and, and taking one day in seven to genuinely give it over to worship, yep. to rest. And it is amazing. Christians feel super uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Um, it's one of the commandments. Amen. But we've convinced Amen. ourselves, you know. And so it's interesting. In some circles, people are like, sabbath and it's this big legalism debate but when i get invited to speak in other like evangelical circles who've never talked about the sabbath and i say, do you know that god actually has he wants you one day in seven you go you worship you should enjoy his creation love one another feast that kind of thing they're like no (laughs) no it can't be it sounds too good and and people think i'm lying there's a reason why all my students feel guilty if they're not studying on Sunday. Yeah. And it's because they've been catechized yeah. and they, and, and let's be clear. They don't just think their parents are going to be disappointed with them. They through their parents have become convinced God is going to be disappointed with them yeah. for not yeah. working on that day too. Yeah. Amen. Well, man, there's so much here to think about. Sorry, that got a little, no, preachy. no, it's good. No, I love it. It's uh, yeah. we embrace it. Um, This has been so rich. Kelly and I, I'm so Thanks thankful. For, yeah, thank I'm you. so thankful that you wrote this book. Um, I think as a result of this interview, a lot of our people will pick it up. I'm going to be recommending it. Um, we've talked a lot about things from the negative angle. Mm. Leave us in closing here, just in the last couple minutes or whatever. Leave us with what's the hope that you want people to have? Yeah. After after reading your book, um, what, what what do you want to be the fruit that is bore out of their life. Paint that picture for us. Yeah, that's good. Um, and maybe we can go back to where we started. So with the title, You're Only Human, um, a lot of your listeners have probably heard that expression. And people, and I, you know, I like it too. People say, hey, you're only human, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
And oh, I'm sorry. The expression we often say is you are enough. Mm. Right. Have you ever heard that? expression? You're enough. Mm-hmm. It's OK. Mm-hmm. You're enough. Yeah. And, and I like that expression. Except for I'm an annoying theologian and theologians aren't poetic and never say things right. Right. But if if I'm honest, the wonderful statement, you're enough, I would actually as a theologian say you're not enough, which is exactly why you are enough. Hmm. You see, you and I were never made to be enough, which is why we're enough. Mm-hmm. God never expected us to be everything, to do everything. And so the positive is the Christian life is not about being super spiritual. It's not about being superhuman. The Christian life is ultimately just about being truly and fully human. Yeah. That's what it's, it's the beauty of just loving God, loving your neighbor and rightly relating to the earth. That's the Christian life. Mm-hmm. It is about you doing your work to the glory of God and honoring him in your rhythms and pace. It is about you loving your family. It is about you honoring yourself, which includes the body God gave you. Yeah. And it is, it is about enjoying his good creation and not feeling guilty when you go for a walk, not feeling guilty when you're snuggling with your labradoodle. Right. It is about, in, it is honestly, part of it is learning to say when you take a bite of the strawberry, praise God, this is from God. When you snuggle the labradoodle, praise God, this is a good gift. Yes. When you are going slow and you realize, because when we don't have margin, you can't love. But when you do have margin, you finally can love. Or you can finally worship. Yeah. And that's what you're saying. Like, God, thank you for this tree. When I'm going a thousand miles per hour, I don't notice the tree. You know, yep. so it's it's love and it's worship, I think, too, like that just lands on me. Yeah. I mean, even for me personally. OK, so if we're honest, the reason why most of us don't pray, we never want to say this because right? it's such a waste of time. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't do anything. We're not accomplishing anything. Tangible. Exactly. It's it's inefficient. <laughs> inefficient. Yep. We need to get busy, including his pastor. We need to get busy and do the stuff. Yep. And if you actually buy into God is God and we're not. Amen. And that prayer is not ultimately a list of giving God a to-do, but it is genuinely about love and communion um, and bringing him our cares, our anxieties, our delights, and, our, and being with him and not actually feeling guilty about spending time with him, which people are like, I, I never spend enough time. That it's because of certain things. Anyways, so yeah, just slow down. Yeah. Um, and and anyways, I actually do. I think prayer is one of the fruits of learning that you're truly human. Amen. That's a that's a great yeah. way to end our discussion here, Doctor Kelly. And uh, man, so thankful for this conversation. And um, if folks want to find more things that you've written, I assume they can just go to your Amazon page or Crossway yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah All right, Kelly. Well, thank Thanks, you so Zach. much. I appreciate you taking the time. This is fun. All right, man. We'll be in touch.